Hello, everyone, and thanks for listening to Insurance Uncovered. I'm your host, Kathy Imus, and today's a big day for us as we're celebrating the 100th episode of Namix Podcast. We want to thank all of you who continue to tune in and to those of you just discovering this podcast. We really appreciate your support, and we will continue to bring you all new insurance news and perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. So today we're uncovering cyber risk, steps insurers can take now to protect against the impacts of a potential Russian cyber attack, plus a new push for the Resilient America Act. The Build Strong Coalition's Natalie Enclave tells us why mitigation measures are crucial for reducing the impacts of environmental disasters. But first, many experts believe the Russian invasion of Ukraine has increased the risk of cyber attacks and potential claims costs for property casualty insurers. Both countries have already openly recruited cyber forces to attack opposing IT systems and networks. So insurers writing cyber coverage are encouraged to scenario test their portfolios against the possibility of cyber losses. A new study from NAMIC and Guy Carpenter titled Scenario Testing Our Mutual Future focuses on five adverse scenarios relevant to most PC carriers today, including the risk of a systemic silent cyber event. Guy Carpenter's Blake Berman says carriers should treat the cyber threat as not a question of if, but when. Blake, cyber risk has become a high priority for insurers since the beginning of the pandemic. Does the threat of the escalating situation in Europe add to the urgency? Over the past several years, insurers have been increasingly focused on quantifying and mitigating their exposure to cyber losses. To date, most cyber claims resulted from non-physical events, such as ransomware, phishing attacks, and other privacy and data breaches. These attacks have come from a range of actors, but generally have been driven by a desire for commercial gain or for espionage. As organized cybercrime groups and nation states become increasingly brazen, the risk of cyber losses can quickly shift from stolen data to real physical disruptions to critical infrastructure and supply chains. Cyber sabotage of financial systems, transportation hubs, vehicles, smart homes, and robotic technologies used across different industries can result in significant property damage, civil liability, or even loss of life. The industry is keeping a close eye on the current situation in Ukraine and monitoring for any potential repercussions that arise from the sanctions applied against Russia. Property and casualty insurers must understand how cyber events could drive losses across their entire portfolio and ensure they are responding accordingly through underwriting, updated policy language, and cyber reinsurance protection. How can insurers apply some of the key takeaways from the scenario testing paper to prepare for a cyber risk? Is it too late for that now? Well, the good news is it's not too late for insurers to enhance their risk management of potential cyber loss exposure. All insurers review their policy language and, where possible, explicitly address cyber risk and coverage. For both property and liability carriers alike, it is important to review accumulation of exposed limit by industry and across supply chains. Where risk in a given industry vertical exceeds tolerance, limit management or clash reinsurance can help to bring that risk back in line. It's also important to quantify the accumulated contents and time element cover by region and industry and understand how a malicious cyber attack might lead to a systemic time element or property loss across multiple insurance. The NAMIC and Guy Carpenter scenario tests help carriers 
quantify the potential magnitude of their exposure to these types of losses. The losses modeled in the scenario tests exceed a company's peers or their internal risk tolerances, it may be a good indication that they should take another look at how they are proactively managing this risk. What do you feel is the most important thing to share on this topic? In an uncertain world, the protection that insurance provides is critical for the economy to function. Insurers' fundamental role is to help individuals and businesses manage their fortuitous risk. The challenge presented by the rapid emergence of large-scale cyber events is an opportunity for the insurance market to evolve and grow to meet the needs of today's insurers. As the scenario testing analysis shows, our mutual industry is up to the challenge. Thanks, Blake. To read the full scenario testing paper, you can find it on NAMIC.org. NAMIC testified on March 3rd before the Rhode Island House Judiciary Committee in support of a bill that would regulate third-party litigation financers. The bill would require registration, bonding, and certain disclosures to consumers before entering a legal funding contract. It also includes provisions related to prohibited conduct by a litigation financer. NAMIC Regional Vice President Rory Whelan testified at the hearing and says the bill is a great first step. Here's what we, this, this comes down to. This completely unregulated, uh, these litigation financers, as the bill calls them, uh, are, are, is part of the dark money of hedge funds, um, foreign investment. We have no idea where this money is coming from. What we do know is that they, they charge outrageous amounts of money and financing charges. And that's where I think the bill can get better. Uh, I think it's a, it's a great first step in terms of registration, bonding, disclosure, which is incredibly important. But I think um, this committee could do more, uh, and that is to limit the amount of the loan, limit the finance charges, and the interest. Um, there, there's no such limit placed in this bill, and I think those amendments would go a long way toward increasing consumer protections. NAMIC continues to fight in support of legislation to limit the interest litigation financers charge consumers, which can escalate to 300% or more in some cases. Well, NAMIC is asking its members to reach out to their members of Congress and urge them to support the Resilient America Act. The legislation is designed to better shield America's communities from the effects of severe weather catastrophes by providing necessary transformational resources for communities to better protect themselves. On today's Unscripted, our Neil Aldridge talks with BuildStrong Coalition Executive Director Natalie Enclade about why mitigation measures are crucial for reducing the impacts of environmental disasters to save lives, property, and taxpayer dollars. Joining me today for the Unscripted section of the podcast is the Executive Director of the BuildStrong Coalition, Natalie Enclade. Natalie just took over this role in December, so we're excited to welcome her and learn more about her and her background and the work the coalition is doing on behalf of insurers to improve our resiliency in the United States. So thanks for joining us today, Natalie. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Sure thing. So, so first of all, we know you just started, and we're going to talk a little bit about your predecessor and kind of how you got here, but spend a minute just telling us about what the Build Strong Coalition is. Yeah, so the Build Strong Coalition is a group of firefighters and emergency responders and insurance and engineers and architects, contractors, manufacturers, um, and 
consumer organizations and code specialists that are committed to building a more resilient America. Um, it was established in 2011 as the pre preeminent organization driving the national policy discussion on how to increase investments in mitigation uh, to draw down disaster costs and losses. Um, the strength and success of Biltrong is based entirely on our members. Uh, it's led by our executive committee and um, supported by our government advisory committee and broad membership base. Yeah, that's terrific. I know NAMIC has played a, a key role in the organization for, for since its founding, really. Uh, I think Jimmy Grandy has served as the chair of it uh, since its inception for us. And it's really been kind of our effort to hopefully change the debate about resiliency conversations in America and, and focusing on the notion that we could actually build buildings and infrastructure to withstand storms. Um, and obviously, from an insurer's perspective, um, if we're going to build buildings where there are hurricanes, hopefully we can build them to where they're still there after the hurricane stops. So that's a great, uh, uh, you know, uh, mission for the coalition and something that we certainly support here at NAMIC. So, uh, so just as I mentioned, you just took over in December. Um, so let's get to know you a little bit better. I know what would you do before joining the coalition, et cetera. Um, so I always like to start my career background story um, by saying that I grew up right outside of New Orleans because growing up in that high risk area really shaped how I view disasters and preparedness. Um, of course, Hurricane Katrina really gave me that extra push to kind of focus my career path, my education path, everything in this resilient space. Um, and I remember the exact moment as I watched the coverage of the storm and I watched the roof fly off the Superdome. Um, this was a huge moment for me. The dome was such a presence in the city and to see how fragile it really was against a disaster, um, I knew that I was gonna focus my policy degree on emergency management and policies for ways to build back stronger after storms and better prepare for the next one. Um, I spent a bulk of my career with the Homeland Security Office of Inspector General auditing these FEMA programs and really getting frustrated by the same findings over and over again and the programmatic challenges. And I was really thrilled when I was chosen to be a policy expert um, to do a detail to the Senate Homeland Security Governmental Affairs Committee, uh, not once, but twice. And on that second round back in 2017, 2018 was really career changing for me. Um, this is when my introduction to and my journey with NAMIC and BuildStrong began. Uh, we all played that role in creating this groundbreaking legislation in the emergency management space, um, the Disaster Recovery Reform Act, or everybody calls it DURA. Uh, so while Pam, who is a wonderful mentor of mine, was pushing Dura on the House side, I was helping to quarterback the effort on the Senate side. Um, prior to the legislation, the focus at the federal level was really on just pouring billions and billions of dollars of federal money, federal money into just rebuilding everything back the way it was. And I saw it over and over again through the FEMA audits and um, Dura was really the first time that Congress took this good hard look at how we were doing pre-disaster mitigation. And um, honestly, thanks to BuildStrong and uh, the critical work of so many NAMIC members, 
specifically leaders like Jimmy, who played a lead role in starting the coalition, as you mentioned. Um, building codes and the importance of pre-disaster mitigation. These topics were just never really traditionally um, getting much traction on the Hill. It wasn't a huge attention grabber. Um, but after all of this, it became a huge focus in uh, a both both sides, like both House and the Senate, uh, both sides of the aisle. Um, and Namick and Bildstrong really played that critical role in keeping up the drumbeat over the years. Um, and so that that was really helpful in getting folks starting to recognize the need to invest in pre-disaster mitigation efforts on the front end, um, instead of just waiting for these disasters to strike and just throw money at it. Um, so that change in approach was is none more evident um, than with the creation of Dura, um, which led to the game changer, uh, building resilient infrastructure and in communities or the BRIC program, um, which I tell everybody this, and I've said this for years and years and years, but uh, when we were fighting to pass Dura, whenever I needed an extra push, whenever I saw a Senate staffer start to could see it in their eyes. They're starting to drift away. Um, I knew that I could uh, pick up the phone and call Jimmy or Build Strong's president, Phil Anderson, um, and they'd send out some magical signal and the phones and inboxes would be flooded with all the support that I needed to get Dura moving again. Um, uh, probably had those two guys in my call log more than my own family at that point in time. But after my time with the Senate, I got the wonderful opportunity to go inside of FEMA and run individual and community preparedness, which is really where my passion was. And um, I got to work with the mitigation folks as they developed this new BRIC program. And um, it was really cool to just like work on the legislation, then the implementation, and now to join Build Strong to work on BRIC from a completely different perspective is really exciting. Well, that's great. You're You're one of the few people in the world that actually like is doing the work you thought you were going to be doing and you went to college and uh, started your career and all those kinds of things. It's a perfect background to run the Build Strong Coalition now. That's really great. Thank you. Yeah, the uh, I always tell the story, my early days at NAMIC, this, I started in 1999, didn't know a thing about insurance. Um, but back then we were starting to get, that was right when the building code debates were starting to try to happen. And they sent me to Kansas, who didn't have a statewide building code then. And, you know, they get a lot of tornadoes in Kansas. You would think a building code there would be a fairly straightforward uh, process. And they sent the guy that didn't know anything about insurance. But I could at least talk about the notion of, you know, there's tornadoes here. We ought to have building codes here. And I set off for that meeting and was shocked by the number of people in the room. Um, it was like, what in the world have I gotten myself into here? Uh, there are a lot of people that have a lot of interest, I quickly learned, uh, in these yes. issues. Um, and they also are things, you're exactly right, you can really bore a room really quickly um, with these topics. But they're important and they matter. And the work that you're going to now do with the Build Strong Coalition really matters. So let's, let's talk just a little bit about the BRIC program itself. Just give us a little, like, what what is it exactly, and how, what role does it play uh, in in the, in the world of resilience today? So it is a pre-disaster mitigation program that FEMA operates. Um, it is um, 
it was designed with the Disaster Recovery Reform Act, DURA, and it pulls 6%. There are many things that DURA did, but creation of the BRIC program was one of the biggest. It pulled 6% of disaster relief funding up front into pre-disaster mitigation, up to 6%. Um, so this is really exciting because prior to the BRIC program being created, we were putting about 50 to $100 million in pre-disaster mitigation in a year. Um, and by we, I mean the taxpayer and the nation. Um, and the first year of BRIC was $500 million. And that was really exciting. And this last year, it was increased to a billion dollars. That is one billion with a B. And so that is really, really impressive with how much money we're putting into mitigation. And so the BRIC program pays for building out um, capabilities and capacity for mitigation. Um, it also pays for management costs and um, maybe enforcement in there too. So, yes, enforcement is part of it, but um, there are some challenges with the enforcement issue. Um, there always have been. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so, we're working to get. We're, I view, I view Build Strong as very much a watchdog of the program um, that could be by inspector general background coming out there. But as you mentioned, enforcement, it brings up these issues that people come to us when they're having challenges with FEMA and saying that they can't get um, XYZ done. And so enforcement, building code enforcement has been one of the issues that we've been hearing. And so that is something that we're working on um, through various legislation that we're working on this year through Build Strong, uh, the Resilient America Act. Right. So, yeah, it's a good transition into that. You, we, you mentioned Dura, of course, and then we've got this new Resilient America Act um, that NAMIC and others, the Build Strong and others in the industry have been pursuing. Um, and, you know, this, this uh, Disaster Recovery Reform Act. Um, talk about the difference between Dura and the new Resilient America Act and kind of what the differences may be between the two? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Resilient America has been called Dura 2.0 by some people. Um, there's a lot of fixes in Resilient America that refine BRIC. Um, there's some challenges. Obviously, there's challenges with every new program. So I'm going to caveat that um, when you're setting them up. And as you're developing a program, you you start to see issues that need to be fixed. And so we're starting to see that obviously with the enforcement issue, um, specifically the funding mechanism, FEMA is not transferring in the 6% currently um, and eligibility issues. So 100,000 foot level, um, broad brush, Resilient America will massively increase the size of the BRIC fund, as well as give communities um, new tools to harden homes, including retrofitting existing homes and aging infrastructures. I mean, aging, aging structures. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's helpful, I can go into the specifics of Resilient America. Sure. And, okay, great. Um, so the first thing is that it will increase 
annual spending into BRIC from up to 6% where it currently is to doubling, over doubling it to up to 15% of the post-disaster funding. Um, it would require unspent funds be recaptured for mitigation and resilience projects. Um, there's a lot of unspent mitigation dollars out there for a lot of various reasons. Um, so we wanna incentivize both prioritizing spending current obligations as well as filling up that brick bucket. Um, it would also extend eligibility for the BRIC program grant funding to private nonprofits. Uh, it would also provide a 10% set aside within BRIC to enforce the latest consensus-based building codes. Uh, would also add wildfires, tsunamis, um, including strengthening utilities against wind, ice, and wildfire risk as eligible hazards. And um, it would also create a pilot program for residential retrofit grants. And so, for example, but obviously not limited to um, wind and roof retrofits, flood proofing, safe rooms and things like that. Yeah, that's always been a particular problem here. It's, it's one thing to build new structures to the new standard. It's another matter about what do you do with the ones we already have. Right. Uh, and that retrofit <laughs> question is a big, a big issue. Yes. Uh, it, it's good to hear. And that's a sizable difference in the funding, too. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's starting to get to be some real money there that we hope will actually can make a difference over time. Yes. Yeah, that's a that's a change for that's one of the rare federal government programs that may actually be for the betterment of things. Yes. Um, in terms of how it operates, if we can get it, some of the kinks worked out, which right. is to be expected to some degree. I mean, it is new. So. It, um, yeah, and it's, I think it's really cool to note on this program is that the first year, um, a couple states didn't apply um, for that, and it was $500 million, which was the, the most that they had put into a program like this before. And so this past year, um, with the billion dollars, every single state, tribe, and territory applied. Um, oh, is that they, right? No kidding. That, that's good. That's yeah. Really cool. Um, yeah. But they asked for the applications totaled 4.16 billion dollars um it's a little bit over the billion that yeah. <laughs> that was in the bucket so we're definitely working on trying to get more money into that bucket so we can help more communities good so can you tell us like where does the act stand at the moment where are we in the process what can people do to help all those kinds of things? absolutely um so resilient america uh was passed out of House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee this past October, uh, which is a f the first step, obviously, is a huge step. Uh, overwhelming support. It was so fantastic. It was voted out of committee at 63 to 2, uh, showing like unbelievable bipartisan nature of not only the bill, but it's really a testament to the work that we're doing in general. Um, it's hard to argue against smart, sensible mitigation measures, right? Like I've watched people try it kind of interesting. Um, division on Capitol Hill is worse than it's ever been. And we've really been lucky to find a package that's so bipartisan. So we've, we've been extremely lucky on getting this moving. Um, next up for Build Strong in terms of this, there's uh, a little sneak peek. Tomorrow, we're sending a letter to House leadership uh, to urge swift action on the floor. We, this is really exciting. We had over 30 separate organizations join in with us, and it's 
a broad range on government trade organizations, nonprofits, private industry, um, such broad support for this legislation. And we're hopeful that this strong push will get the um, bill on the House floor successfully and expect it once it's there um, to pass under suspension, uh, which is just procedure that the House uses to quickly pass non-controversial bills. Um, so after that, uh, next up is the Senate. And luckily, I'm pretty well versed in the Senate and especially some of the more arcane procedures over there, um, given my time with the committee. And we do expect that once Resilient America's passed the House, that it's going to become a priority on the Senate side. Um, so Bill Strong's definitely in that conversation and we're working every angle possible over there. And we're currently determining best route. Like, would a companion bill be the best route? Should we attach it to another vehicle for prompt passage? Um, but we'll obviously be sure to loop in NAMIC through newsletters or whatever, and um, any way that we can utilize you guys to help us help Resilient America get over that finish line. Yeah, that's great. Well, we'll certainly do it. Uh, it's important work. It's work that's never going to show up on the front page of any news organization or lead the evening news. But uh, it's yeah. one of those things that, you know, really is important. It's that kind of nuts and bolts work. You know, the insurance industry sort of changed the way consumers buy cars on safety measures and seat belts And all of those issues are really the work of the insurance industry. And we believe this is the same kind of parallel we can do on these, this space where we can really change the infrastructure and uh, not only people save lives and property, but uh, just make uh, the, the uh, infrastructure and, and the structures that exist around the country better. Um, and again, nobody will ever thank us and nobody will ever, uh, you know, give us an award for it, but it, it doesn't uh, deter us from working on it every day. So right. listen, we appreciate your time today. We uh, thanks for your work. Uh, as I mentioned, it's important, and we look forward to working with you. Uh, and anytime NAMIC members or, or we can be of help, please do let us know. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Sure thing. And that's a wrap for our 100th episode of Insurance Uncovered. Thanks again for listening for the last five years. We're very grateful for your support. And we'll be back again on March 23rd with more insurance news and interviews. In the meantime, if there's a topic or issue you'd like us to uncover, don't hesitate to let us know. You can send us an email at uncovered at Until next time, I'm Kathy Imus. Have a wonderful day.